please be bringing your prayers to a close. Please be bringing your prayers to a close. Oh, good evening, good evening. Um, again, uh, welcome to you, especially if you're joining us for the first time. A special welcome to Heritage. Do not rush off. After the service, please visit the welcome desk where we will uh, take down your email so we can send you our weekly newsletter and give you a little welcome gift. So getting, uh, no, there's no special announcements other than the one that was made uh, to members this morning concerning uh, if you are discipling someone and the coming membership intake. So just remember, if you did get that email from Pastor Lelo, please reply to it as soon as possible. Uh, this is just to finalize details concerning the membership intake. With that aside, let us begin our order of the evening service. 
we have gathered this evening to praise God whose word is fulfilled in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So allow me to open for us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we say with the psalmist this evening, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. The Lord, we praise you and worship you as the only God, the only true God, the holy and mighty and gracious God. And we know this because you are, your world, the world is full of your glory and you are kind to us. And so please show us your glory this evening as we hear your word preached. Please work in our hearts, in our minds, and shape us more into the likeness of Christ. We ask for all your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we begin out uh, with, the, with the preaching of God's word, we're going to sing one hymn, which is Come Praise and Glorify. So let us all stand together and let's sing. Praise of your mercy and grace 
Amen. Please take your seats as we receive the preaching of God's Word. Good evening, church. Please turn with me in your copy of the Lord's Word to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing this evening in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Last week, we were... In the passage where the Lord spoke of uh, the church being the salt and light, and we continue where we left off in verse 17, in a uh, rather a very important section of the sermon. Verse 17, let me read that to you. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. We say that the Sermon on the Mount is, the, is possibly the most important sermon ever preached. And part of the reason we say that is because the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's exposition of His moral law. So the moral law, that is the law of God written by God's own hand, seen in the Ten Commandments uh, particularly, uh, had at this time been confused, obfuscated by the people, particularly the leaders. And so the Lord Jesus comes and he gives an exposition on the moral law. What is it that God requires in the Ten Commandments? And generally, then that means, what is it that God requires in his people? In this passage, particularly here, we see the Lord Jesus making clear his relationship not just to the Ten Commandments, but to the Old Covenant law. See, he's about to begin an exposition from verse 21 when he talks about anger. He's about to begin uh, taking parts of the law and, and blowing it up and showing us what it truly means and what was actually required by the law when it was given. But here he wants to set the record straight before he begins that. He wants to set the record straight regarding his allegiance to the law of God. In this discussion, Jesus shows us that he has not come to overturn what is in the Old Testament, or come to overturn it, but rather he has come as the expectation of the Old Covenant. In other words, 
Jesus' coming and the dawn of the New Testament is an answer to the longing and hopes of the Old Testament. He does not replace, he does not abolish, he does not turn over, but rather he answers and fulfills. This, is extreme. this was a particularly extremely important for the Jews at Jesus' time to hear. Part of the Lord Jesus' coming, of course, was as the final prophetic word to the Old Testament people of God. That's, that he was the final prophet, as it were, to the Jews. That is primarily what the writer of Hebrews is telling us in Hebrews chapter 1. When he says in previous times, the, the Lord spoke in various ways, in different ways, but now he's spoken to us by his Son. And the us there is the Jews. And of course, his earthly ministry, as you'll remember, was exclusively to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. And the Jews had been unfaithful in many ways, not least of which the leaders of the Jewish religion had become unfaithful. The problem is, when Jesus comes, proclaiming that he is who he says he is, and then he comes and he preaches true morality, while at the same time castigating the religious leaders of the Jews, it sounds as though Jesus is appending the law of God. Do you understand what I mean? Here is an established system, and here are the established leaders of the system. And Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, but at the same time, he is saying all kinds of things against the leaders of the established system, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so, it is not impossible to see why the people then might think Jesus wants to upend the entire system. Jesus wants to get rid of the entire law. What the, if Jesus has such a low view of the morality of the scribes and the Pharisees, then it makes sense then that maybe even their standard, the, the law and the prophets, that is the entire Old Testament, he has issues against. And Jesus here wants to make it clear, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to invalidate or shut down the word of the Lord that was spoken. And not only that, but Jesus' preaching was very different. You remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, the people marvel and say to each other, what kind of teaching is this? What kind of teaching is this? He's, it's a teaching unlike what we've heard before. It's a teaching with authority. This person is speaking as if he's the authority. So again, in the people's minds, there's a, there could be a question of whether or not Jesus take seriously the law of God that was established at the time. A third and very important factor worth considering is that there were a number of radicals at that time. There were a number of radicals who were coming onto the scene saying that they are messiahs and then wanting to make people revolt and become zealots in different ways. They wanted to change the system. Jesus is not just saying this because he's assuming that people might be thinking this. There had actually been examples of zealots and radicals who came and, and said, I am something, now let's just revolt and do all kinds of things, including setting aside parts of the law of God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 35 and following, Gamaliel gives us two examples of these men. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you in Acts chapter 5, verse 35 to 38. This is what Gamaliel says. Uh, to the leaders of the Israelites. He says to them, Men and Israelites, take care for yourselves that what you are about to do to these men, meaning the apostles. For before these days, 
Theridas rose up saying that he was somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was executed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after Theodas, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and caused people to follow him in revolt. And, then, and that one also perished and all who followed him scattered. So do you see, there were already, there's two examples here, there were more. There's already these examples of people around Jesus' time who were coming saying that there was something, and when they say that there's something, they're leading the people in revolt, not just in revolt against the Roman, the, the Roman leadership, but even in their attitude towards the law of God, they were not perfect. And Jesus wants to separate himself from those, those people and everybody who thinks in that way. Um, and not only does Jesus want to separate himself, but he wants to make it clear that he is entirely beholden to the law and even makes clear that all who teach against the law of God, he says there, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is important for us this evening is that there are two things in Jesus' mind here. Jesus is bringing this up for two reasons. There's two main points of application. One is think correctly, and the second is live correctly. Think correctly, and thereby live correctly. If you don't think correctly, you won't live correctly. You must first think correctly, and then you will live correctly. So the first thing he says there, look at what he says. He says, verse 17, do not think. You see this. Do not think what? Do not think. Spend your mind thinking that perhaps I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, no, no. You must think correctly. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. In this statement, Jesus wants his disciples to, change, to ensure that when it comes to their esteem of him and their esteem of the law, they do not make a categoric separation. The law of God was made by God written by Jesus' own hand. Therefore, Jesus is not coming to destroy everything that he has breathed, that he, through the Holy Spirit, has breathed out, but rather, he has come to fulfill it. There's a number of pieces of thinking that we need to ensure that we do not have. He says, do not think. So, A, here's a contemporary example of thinking that Jesus has abolished the law. If you believe that because Jesus came, we must forget the Old Testament, you are wrong. That's the first point. Very clear, very obvious, low-hanging fruit. Do not think that I've come to abolish the, the, the law and the prophets. Meaning, if you believe that Jesus came to make obsolete the Old Testament, absolutely useless, no longer beneficial at all, Jesus says you are wrong. And it's important that you ensure that you know that you are wrong so that you can think correctly. The Old Testament is the word of the Lord. There is no new God that shows up in the New Testament. It's the same God throughout. And so whatever you find in the Old Testament, you must not think that it comes from another God or God when he was cranky. But rather, this is the law of the Lord, the perfect one who does not change, who is immutable in every way. Jesus not only comes to not abolish, but he comes to fulfill, meaning that he is in every page. 
The law is expecting him. The prophets are expecting him. In everything that they say, all their major propositions are pointed towards Jesus. This is why Jesus castigated the Pharisees and said in John chapter 5, you guys search the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, you search the scriptures and you think that by them you will have life, but it is they that testify to me. The Old Testament is entirely and completely about the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us something, it reveals something in all of its corners regarding the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, at the very least, your relationship to the Old Testament must be a healthy one. This is God's word. I need to obey it. I need to understand it and understand what it means to me. I need to understand it in its, in its correct context. How was it, who was it written to? What was happening there? And how does this now translate to me? Failure to do that is a de-estimation of Jesus. Taking the Old Testament lightly, making fun of laws that are in the Old Testament, thinking of it as archaic, archaic useless wisdom, that's, that's, you're, that's, you're not doing what you think you're doing if you do that. If you do that, you are not estimating Jesus because Jesus is in the, is in the pages of the Old Testament. That's A. B, do not think. If you believe that the moral law contained in the Old Testament is archaic, you are wrong. If you believe that the moral system that is in the Old Testament is from times when before we were enlightened and therefore we need to update it because now we know more, you are wrong. It was written by a timeless God pointing to the coming of his son. The moral law, that is the Ten Commandments, is the very basis for every New Testament command. Have you ever thought about that? There is no New Testament command that is not derived from one of the Ten Commandments. Not a single one. Page, randomly paged to any, uh, any New Testament letter and find a command that is said by the apostles to us. You can clearly map where they take that from the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments is God's moral law. God showing how we are to walk, and every command is taken from there. So there is nothing in there that you are to look at and think. This is old-fashioned, needs to, it, 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 you know, it needs to be modified for our updated scientific system, our better understanding of, you know, we, you know we've got Freud and Maslow now, so therefore now we, 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 we understand these things better. No. That kind of attitude is wrong. Uh, the, the Old Testament law is the law of God, and the psalmist in Psalm 19 says it is perfect. You have to understand, the Old Testament is more perfect than you, right? We are striving for perfection, but the psalmist says the Old Testament is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. It, it does not need to improve. It has no weaknesses. There is not a category that it did not think about. As it relates to perfection, the Old Testament is that. The Old Testament, when you think about it, you must think in the same way that you would think about the, seven, the six days of creation. God did, God laid the Old Testament, and at the end, he rested. He was done. It was perfect, 
Of course, the new covenant was coming because the Old Testament was expecting in it the coming of the new covenant. It's perfect in the sense that it is looking forward to a real and true Messiah who will come and take away the sin of the world. It is lacking nothing. Any kind of demeaning of the Old Testament is not Christian. We need to understand that it was given at a particular point in time to a particular people in time with the expectation of the Christ that now says all of us, both Jews and Gentiles. That's B. The moral law contained in the Old Testament is not archaic and needs to be set aside. Thirdly, uh, do not think that the Old Testament in its entirety will not be fulfilled. Do not think that all that the Old Testament expects will somehow fall short. That's the proposition in verse 18. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, he makes this rather clear. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. There is nothing that the Old Testament was looking forward to that will not happen. If there's even an iota, like the, the smallest, an iota is the Hebrew or Greek, uh, Greek term of, the, of just, a, just, a, uh, just a, a dot. Not even, not even, a, not even a, a dot will, will, will pass away until it's accomplished. It must be accomplished. Whatever God said in the Old, in the old Covenant, in the, in the way that he said it, what he meant by it, okay, because there's people misunderstanding what he meant by it, so the problem is not with God, the problem is with us when we expect it, when we expect something that God never meant. But rather what God meant and promised will be accomplished. And this is something that we need to have in our minds. That the Old Testament had expectations. And this is part of the, of the whole thing really with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is an expected book. Anybody who looks at the Old Testament and sees finality, like end, is not, has not read the Old Testament properly. The Old Testament remains a, an expectant book. The Old Testament speaks of future, speaks of something coming. And of course, all of that is found in Jesus Christ, in his first and in his second coming. And so therefore, there is nothing that is there that by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, guaranteed by promises, uh, that will not happen. It will all happen in its entirety. When the Lord Jesus comes and returns with the church and makes everything new in an instant, like Second Thessalonians tells us, Jesus is going to come and those of us who are alive will be changed and will meet them in the air and will be together forever with them. When he comes to inaugurate the new heavens and new earth, the entirety of the Old Testament will then be fulfilled. So do not look down on the Old Testament. Have a high view, a sober view, a full view of the, the Old Testament. And when you have a full view, a respectful view, an honoring view of the Old Testament, you will be having an honoring view of Jesus. Because then you start to see him clearly. and You start to understand him aright. You start to see all the, all the, the, the shades of his glory. In those shadows and types that are in the Old Testament, these pictures that are in the Old Testament, you start to appreciate more of who and what Christ is and, what, and, and more of what it is that he has accomplished and he will accomplish 
for his people. So because of all of this, this theology, think correctly regarding the Old Testament. Here is the proposition for us in verse 19 and 20 by the Lord. This is what he now says. He says, uh, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So if we think correctly about the Old Testament, we will live correctly with regards to the entirety of the law of God. Now, when Jesus says, whoever then teaches others to, whoever relaxes some of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, that person we call least in the kingdom of heaven, who is Jesus thinking about? Well, he tells us right here, the people that are relaxing and changing what the Old Testament is saying, in Jesus' mind, the primary people there are the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you and I have any hope of being faithful to Jesus that is entering into the kingdom of heaven, we ought to be better than them when it comes to how we think and how we act with regards to the moral law of God. While the old covenant was in effect, the scribes and the Pharisees were sitting on Moses' seat and they had to teach the law and not relax it. So this is a warning for us. We must uphold the law of God and not do as they did. If you want to understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 19 and 20, you really need to study what is it that the Pharisees did. Because Jesus is saying, essentially to summarize what he's saying in verse 19 and 20, he's saying do, do the law better than the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. That is, be faithful to God and don't act like the Pharisees and scribes who are not faithful to God, okay? So then what is it that the Pharisees and scribes are doing that we are supposed to not emulate? What is it that they were, how was it that they were thinking and how was it that they were living that showed that they did not take seriously the law of God? Four things. Four things at least. There's many things. But four things at least, and for here we're going to just go to a bit of finger Olympics because I want you to see some of these things yourselves. Number one, they taught people to break God's moral law for the sake of tradition. Come with me to Matthew 15 and verse 3. I want to show you this. The, 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 the Pharisees taught people to break the Lord's moral code for the sake of tradition. This is what Jesus says. Well, let's start from verse 1 here in, in chapter 15. He says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And now notice the response of the Savior. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? They were saying to him, you must keep the traditions of the elders. And Jesus is saying, you are breaking the law of the Lord from the heart of the Lord for the sake of what you want. And then he goes on to explain in verse 4 what he means. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. That's, that's the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments. 
God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. They have traditions. They have ways of living. They wanted people to be able to to give large sums of money and so the people don't need to honor, that is physically take care of, financially of their parents, which is what is expected in, 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 uh, in, uh, in the fifth commandment to some degree. They wanted, so, what, so then they, they gave people an out. Just say, whatever that you did for me, it's korban. That is, whatever you did to me, it's a gift to God that you gave to him. That was evil. For the sake of wanting to keep a particular status quo, they told people to break the law of the Lord. This is evil stuff. And friends, this must come to us now. If we want to be better than the Pharisees, if you allow me to use that language, if, we, if our righteousness is going to exceed that of the Pharisees, then we need to understand what it is to honor your father and your mother, and we need to do it. But there's more categories here. There's more examples that we can give. That are that, and that's one tradition that they had, and for the sake of their tradition, they broke this law. We need to think about us. What traditions do we have? What things do we have going that then we allow ourselves to break the law of the Lord? You need to think, we need to think about this. So I have three examples for you that I have written down here. And these I want to call these acceptable sins in our culture, in our time. These are, they, they form part of our tradition and thinking. But if we live in this way, in accordance to the tradition of our time, we will be breaking the law of the Lord. And we need to know what it is that we're doing, and we need to know that we are not exceeding the Pharisees if we do these things. Here are three, just three examples, there's more. I'm sure we can keep going forever, but I want to give you three examples. Number one, the law of rest. Like we heard this morning, we are commanded repeatedly and emphatically by, emphatically by God's example to rest one day in seven. That is to not touch work one day in seven. But in our culture, it's easy to tell others that the one commandment out of the ten can be easily broken for the sake of making money. So it's, 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 it's allowable to not trust the Lord because our culture dictates it. You must, know, you must know now that if you work seven days straight, unless your work is a work of necessity, and of course we can discuss some of these things, but unless your work is a work of necessity and you're working all the time, constantly at work for the sake of making more money, you are breaking the law of the Lord and you are not exceeding the Pharisees. If you choose to maximize your money-making potential over the clear command to rest one day in seven, you are in sin. If it's up to you, if it's your choice, it's not a work of necessity, like a, you know, it's, but it's your choice. You choose to make more money, and so you set aside the fact that God rested and tells us to rest repeatedly throughout both Old and New Testaments. You are in sin. Number two, gluttony. Gluttony. 
Now listen, people indeed struggle with their weight often, and I'm, I'm certainly one of them. But we must never come to a point where we are a people who are not challenged with regards to our eating habits. Our eating habits say much about us and our esteem of the law of the Lord that tells us that how we eat shows our esteem of God and His law. Gluttony is a sin. Your eating habits say much about your worship of God. This is a serious thing. It cannot just be because just to not to just be part of the culture that we, we, we don't deal with. This. this is a real issue. We must deal with it. Gluttony, God has constantly showed us in the scripture that it is a sign of something being terribly wrong in our hearts. And we must deal with it, not just for health reasons, but for the sake of honoring the word of the Lord. Thirdly, addictions. The scripture makes it clear that if something masters you, that is if something commands you, something can say to you, go this way and that way, you are its slave. Jesus makes this clear in John when he says, a man, if a man sins, he is a slave to sin. And of course in Romans chapter 6, we are told to not be made, to, to be submissive to anything else except righteousness. And of course even also in 1 Corinthians 8, it says, I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. Every, not everything is beneficial. I will not be mastered by everything. Addictions are a clear sign that something is wrong. If you are addicted to your phone, to food, to cigarettes, to video games, to pornography, to gossip, to TV, to alcohol, anything, you are in contravention of the Lord's command to be in your sober mind and not be mastered by anything. This is clear in the scripture. And again, this is our esteem of the law of the Lord and therefore our esteem of Jesus who says we must not relax any of these. We must not be mastered by anything. These are just three examples. The law of rest, gluttony, and addictions. We are not to relax on any of these things. We need to be thinking on what the Lord says and take it seriously and fight to work towards what the Lord is calling us to. You can think of other examples, and perhaps even in your life as we're thinking about this, perhaps the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, showing you where are you relaxing for the sake of tradition and doing things the way that they've always been done. Where are you relaxing the law of the Lord? Number two, example number two of what, the, of what they did. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, come with me there real quick. Matthew 23, verse, verse 23. Jesus shows us something else that the Pharisees did that we must not do. Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. These people, they, they, they went for the easier things in the law and they left the weightier matters of the law, the ones that really cut to the heart and really challenge us, they left them aside. That's what, that's what the Pharisees were doing. Isn't it amazing to you that the people that are most passionate about showing others how much they love the law are the same people that do not keep the weightier matters? People who are very loud about how holy they are are usually the ones who are not keeping the weightier matters. 
I found this principle to be true. The louder, the more quarrelsome and cantankerous somebody is about showing how holy they are, the more they are not actually doing just the basic morality that the Lord requires. The weightier matters. See, these tides are super tides. They are making a big show of someone's faithfulness. And it's the same today. What is important is heart transformation. It's the weightier matters of the law. It's not about fighting this or that political issue, screaming, screaming at the top of our lungs regarding the laws that we love and we keep the most. And what does Jesus say are the weightier matters of the law here? What does he say? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. That's an example of the weightier matters of the law. More than bringing all the massive super tides, what's more important is that you live a life of righteousness. You walk in the right way. You pay what you owe. And you have mercy on those who can't pay what they owe you. Have mercy on them. Be faithful to your God. That's what is required of us. That's if, if we're going to be a people who just love screaming and shouting about the, the important matters of the law, but that are not as important as the, as the others, not as weighty as the others, just the external ones, we are a people who are exactly like the Pharisees. They were hypocrites. He says that. He says that they were hypocrites. And you'll remember throughout, this is the third example. First example is that they relaxed laws. Second example is that they left the weightier matters of the law undone. Third example is that they were hypocrites. You remember what, what their hypocrisy was shown in, and we're going to see more of it in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see how they prayed. We're going to see how they gave, always for a show, always acting. Now, I want to say this. The demand of our Lord Jesus regarding hypocrisy is not that you be perfect, but rather that you do not act as though you are. Do not perform. A person who acts as though they're perfect, they have nothing wrong with them, and they have eyes of superiority when they look on others who are struggling in certain areas, a person like that is belittling the law of the Lord and belittling the Lord Jesus. When you look down on others because of your esteemed, self-esteemed righteousness, because of what you think you are, you are, you are saying all sorts of things about the holiness of God. You're saying all sorts of things about your need for atonement. If you look down on others, what do you think you're saying about your need for atonement? Did Jesus need to come if you're so superior? Maybe you should have been our Messiah. If you think you have mastered this one area such that you are the expert on it and you can look down on others, maybe you should die for our sins regarding that issue because you're the expert. You're the moral superior, superior here. Do you see? It's a problem. Hypocrisy and performance, acting as though you are something that you're not. You're also saying much about the Lord because the Lord sees you when others don't see you, doesn't he? So he knows that you're not that, so you're, just, you're lying. We need to fight hypocrisy. There is no, nothing that the Lord Jesus seems to fight against more strongly in the New Testament, in the synoptics, than hypocrisy. It is constantly on his lips. Beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We could I could never say it strongly enough. Do not be a hypocrite. 
I could never say it more violently enough. The Lord Jesus used all kinds of illustrations to tell his people to stay away from hypocrisy. Do not act. Be honest with where you are and humble yourself and your Lord will help you. Humble yourself. Think of yourself correctly, the Apostle Paul says. Not, not anybody must esteem themselves more than they're what they truly are. Be honest about what you are. Just be honest. This is what I am, and you can get grace. The Lord will help you. The Lord, who does the Lord resist? It's the proud. But who does he give grace to? The humble. Do you want to help in these, in these matters? Be humble. Walk around beating your chest. Unlike, the unlike these hypocrites, the Pharisees, who are acting as though they've arrived, they've mastered the law of the Lord, even in their prayers. Imagine, how deluded must you be to be able to go into the house of prayer and praise yourself? You remember that parable? The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? He's praising himself. <laughs> oh, bless you, God, that I am so amazing. Problems, friends. We need to fight this in our hearts. You are not better than anyone. As soon as that thinking comes into your head, fight it with everything you have. Finally, they did not submit to the fulfillment of the law in Jesus. In Matthew 21, verse 33, I will not repeat the entire parable, but you know the parable is the parable of the tenants. And in this parable... The tenants kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. And of course, the owner of the vineyard is God, and the son is Jesus, and the tenants are the Pharisees and the scribes. And they killed him knowing who he was. They rejected and did not submit to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so really, in summary of all of this, if we are to come to each of us, the first thing we must acknowledge as we think about this mighty law of the Lord is that Jesus is the centerpiece. We must submit to the fact that he is the centerpiece and we must submit our lives to what he says, chiefly being all who are heavy laden and burdened come to me. That's the first port of call. Come to me. If you're weary, burdened, full of sin, struggling to keep the law, there's only one place to go, to the one who's the fulfillment of the law. The one who says, come and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He will walk a journey with you. He will perfect you. He will constantly work in you to make you like himself. And he will finally, he guarantees that you will be in glory with him. Do not attempt to try and keep the law and make yourself perfect Rather, come to Christ. Have your sins entirely forgiven. Submit to the fact that he is the, he is the fulfillment of everything and then walk with him as he constantly works to change you. Amen. Let's pray. All praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ who is the King of glory and the fulfillment of of the Old Testament. In you, Lord Jesus, we find what we desire, rest, forgiveness, and nourishment. Help us, Lord, and please forgive us if we've walked in these ways that we've just spoken about this evening. Please forgive us. 
Cleanse us. Make us new. We do not want to pretend that we are something that we are not. And we do not want to be stuck in habitual sin that you hate. But we will not be able to take ourselves out of these things unless you do something in us. So do it. Do it, Lord. Work in us. Do not forsake us. No matter how much we resist you, we are, we are often resisting you. But do not forsake us in accordance with your will and word. Amen. We'll sing now together a hymn that pleads with the Lord Jesus uh, to make our land and even our own hearts and our minds uh, more like him, that he would shine on us and bring the glory of his gospel to the nations. Won't you stand and let's sing together, Shine, Jesus, Shine. Shining in the midst of the darkness, shining, Jesus, shine on the world, shine upon us, set us free by the truth you now bring us, shine on me, shine.
our welcome desk, and uh, we will meet again next Lord's Day, uh, half past eight for Bible hour, half past nine for the morning service. Now, whenever we consider the law of God and we find our hearts pricked because of how blameful we feel, how, how much we have not kept it, it is always good to remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus is the one who has kept it perfectly on our behalf. And so we are thankful to him. Now I want to leave you with this Jude 24 doxology, which really gives us our hope. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.